You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. It's so good to see you uh, this morning in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Um, using language that often we do not use anymore, uh, but is fitting uh, with the message and place where we will be in the book of Luke uh, this morning. Before we uh, jump in there, I want to uh, remind you guys, some let you know and some remind you that two weeks, I think it's two weeks from today, it might be three, math's not my thing. But on May 21st, Sunday, May 21st, we'll have our, our Senior Recognition Sunday, and that will also be Cash for Camp Sunday. So what we're going to be doing is asking you to bring something extra specifically to give toward our students or the families of our students uh, who will be going to camp this summer. Um, this is a church as I understand it, and as I have certainly seen it be since I've been here, who um, has a long history of being incredibly generous for things like that. And so I'm grateful to God for all of you who give uh, to that. And as I say each year, I don't think there's ever been a time, at least in, in modern history, when it's more significant for our teenagers to have a break from the normal chaos and flurry of communication and messages that they're bombarded with um, to pull away from all of that and simply uh, to be drawn into focus on Christ at a different time and a different place. So I encourage you to, one, be here on the 21st and come ready to give. Come ready to give. I've told you I used to have a uh, professor years ago uh, of another era who had done it right in his day and uh, he had uh, been a pastor for 50 years full time before going on to be a professor. But he said, students, he said, always have them stand for the offering. It's easier to reach your wallet when you're standing. So um, funny guy, great guy, gone on to be with the Lord now, but I encourage you to be here for that. I'd also remind you that there's no midweek this Wednesday. So if you show up here out front, you are welcome to pull weeds um, or do whatever other kinds of labor you may find necessary. Uh, but there will not be anyone meeting up here other than our students who they continue to roll on their own program. So let's pick up this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6. If you're uh, new to, to Lost Mountain or simply new to church, I'm so glad that you're here. We open God's Word every single Sunday because we believe it is uh, the primary place that we go to find the authoritative record of God's revelation in Christ and God's truth uh, upon which we can build certain and strong lives as the people of God. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, uh, one of the so-called gospels, um, because of the good news with which they bear a sketch of the life of Jesus. Now, last week we ended chapter Five, watching a series of um, encounters that Jesus was having with people. Those encounters continue um, this morning, but they continue centered around one of the most controversial topics in the church today, uh, theologically around 
thinking people of God, this issue of the Sabbath and what we are to do and not to do around it. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you uh, never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, and he was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning in that unique and special way as your gathered people. God needing both to hear from you, God needing to give back to you in confession and praise, worship and obedience. God seeking by your grace and mercy that we might be a witness to those in this room, those watching online, Father, who've never surrendered their lives to you in response to your redemptive call. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your transforming word would go out from this place this morning. God, I ask that by your Spirit you would guide and guard my words, that I would only say that which you would have me say. Heavenly Father, do the work in our hearts and our minds this morning that only you can do. God, that no amount of human gifting or preparation or ability can do. God, sanctify us. Save those in our midst who've not yet experienced your great salvation. Father, I pray this in Jesus' holy and victorious name. Amen. Many of you will, will know if you've lived very long that we certainly live in a different world that has a different pace now than even 20 or 30 years ago, uh, much less 40 or 50 years ago. It's interesting. How many of you, just a quick show of hands on this one, how many of you grew up at a time when you were, say, middle schoolers and teenagers, maybe young adults, 
almost every store in town was closed on Sunday. That, wow, that didn't surprise me. That is stunning. That is stunning. I, I did as well, but it's because I grew up in a smaller community um, west of Fort Worth, Texas. And so that was the case, though gas stations were open and Walmart, which would eventually become Super Walmart, was open in a, f- a few places. But uh, I would say that almost all of the private-owned and the family-owned places were closed, and there was not a lot to do. Now, those of you that are like, oh, I've heard this message. Here we go. What we can't do on Sunday. That's not the message um, that God has for us this morning, though I do think there's reflection required, and we'll get to that uh, toward the end. But something has changed. The question is why? question is why. I want to read to you just a, a few short statements from Confessions of Faith. Confessions of Faith are the attempts of spirit-guided men or men and women together in councils to come up with um, a sort of skeletal system uh, reflecting biblical truth for a denomination or a group of people to say, this is our confession of faith. The Bible, yes, and this is what we believe the Bible says about these primary doctrines. I want to start by reading what is probably the best known, strongest, and most theologically significant confession of faith um, that's ever been written, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1646 in England and published uh, for public consumption in 1647, and really has not been changed since, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, on their section regarding the Lord's Day, they wrote this, the Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord when men prepare their hearts for it, arrange for their daily affairs to be taken care of beforehand, rest the whole day from their own works and words, and from thoughts about their worldly activities and recreations, and take up the whole time in public and private worship and then the duties of necessity and mercy. So what the divines, as they were called of Westminster, were doing is trying to summarize as faithfully as they could what they believe was the biblical teaching, Genesis through Revelation, around what is to be taking place on the Lord's day among the Lord's people. If you fast forward some three Hundred years in 1963, the Southern Baptist Convention published the Baptist Faith and Message. The Baptist Faith and Message. And the 1963 version reads this way about the Lord's Day The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should be employed in exercise of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private, and by refraining from worldly amusements. Isn't that a great phrase? And resting from secular employments, work of necessity and mercy only being accepted. Fast forward a number of decades again, the Baptist faith and message is revised in 2000, and the section on the Lord's Day reads as follows in the 2000 Baptist faith and message. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution, a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual 
devotion, both public and private. That's a sound familiar to you because we just read it from the 1963 version. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you notice that change there? No, uh, no comments about restricting worldly activities and recreation and focusing merely on duties of necessity and mercy, which had historically always been noted in confessions of faith. But by 2000, something had changed. Something had changed. Sunday had gone from the Lord's Day to the beginnings of Sunday Fun Day, which would go on to permeate social media within a few years. But let's go back and look, because looking at this and listening to Jesus, you might be saying, that's good. That's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, don't be so legalistic. Stop being such a curmudgeon about what we do on Sunday. Let's go back to the biblical text and look here. We know we know from the words of Jesus in another gospel that he teaches us that God has created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying the Sabbath was given to human beings as a gift. Well, let's do this real quick before we look at Jesus' words. Let me give you a very brief kind of historical picture of Sabbath to keep in the back of your mind. We find it given as an ordinance of God in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Where the author of Genesis says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then he blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, if you skip over just a few books to Exodus 20, actually just one book to Exodus 20, you see what had been given as an ordinance of God is now given as a law or command of God in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. I know, it, like I said a few weeks ago, I know it makes me sound so old, but it is such a thrill in any God-called preacher's life to hear Bible pages turning. So thank you for that thrill. Verse 8, remember, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, keeping it set apart, keeping it as something distinct from the others. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So God is setting up not just a day of rest, but days of work and a day of rest, a certain rhythm in his creation for human beings as his image bearers to image into the world the exact pattern that God himself did. Now, some of us, most of us violate um, at least the latter part of this teaching, the rest all the time. <laughs> some of us violate the first six days of it, the work. Like I sort of, I'm sort of a Sabbather by nature, right? I give myself fully to this one command of God. But we are also commanded to work on it, you shall not do any work, neither you. Now listen to the elements of social justice and integrity here that the Lord lays out. You're to do no work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, 
nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. So he says, this is not just a day of rest for you and the illegal immigrants can go ahead and serve you. This is a day of rest for everyone. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested. On the seventh day, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we find um, a divine ordinance becoming a divine law or divine command. Now look at Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, when uh, the, the second giving of the law is happening by Moses on this side of uh, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Exodus, that uh, in Egypt, that great Old Testament metaphor for our delivery from sin redemptively in Christ. Look at how it goes here. Moses starts in verse 12 of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy and says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded. Now, I won't go on and read you what we just read from Exodus 20 as he uh, repeats that before them, but if you look down at verse 15, Verse 15, he adds something. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out. You didn't bring yourself out. You didn't decide one day you're going to choose to walk out in freedom. God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In other words, through his divine power, he delivered you. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In a sense, it becomes an ordinance of redemption at this point as we remember deliverance. One more place, I don't want to belabor this too much, Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, centuries later, Isaiah speaking to people who were uh, caught up in cycles of disobedience, idolatry, injustice, immorality, and judgment from God. And says in Isaiah 58, 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable. See, God is, God is telling us again and again, the Sabbath is not meant to be something that's just restrictive and laborious for you. It's meant to be something honorable and delightful. And if you honor it by not going your own way, and not doing as you please or speaking out of words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. Any of you wonder if maybe some of the degree of joy you're missing is tied directly to the sheer pace and speed with which you live? The sheer inability to slow down, to relax, to enjoy the great historic biblical truth that God is the one that holds the planets in place. God is the one that maintains his creation and his created order. God is the one that maintains your life. God is the one who holds you redemptively in his strong hands. Verse 14 continues, And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, simply having that in the back of your mind, along with, as we see, the changing nature even of confessions of faith. Let's go back to Luke chapter 6. Jesus is walking, 6 1 tells us, 
through some grain fields. Now, the road system in Galilee and in the ancient Near East did not um, take into account property lines. They made the cleanest, clearest, straightest roads they could make. And so sometimes you would have a grain field, wheat, corn, whatever, and right through your field or through a part of it, across the corner of it, would go a main road. And that's just how it was. That's how it was. It's not as uh, Austin, Texas has gotten itself in quite a mess over the last 20 or 30 years by having so much growth and maintaining to uh, a, an expansion system in the city uh, that doesn't want to uh, denigrate any of the natural beauty. So they build all kinds of unsensical highways and roads so they don't have to take down many trees or run over a cliff that you might want to look at. And what they're getting to is a city that nobody but the weirdest people in America, aside from San Franciscans, actually want to live in. Because all they do is spend hours and hours stuck in traffic. Well, as you can imagine, first century Roman builders didn't have a lot of our modern sensitivities. So they just built the most efficient roads they could build. And, and this is what's happening. They're, they're walking here. And I hope in your mind you can picture kind of the delight of the disciples as they're walking with Jesus who continually confounds them with what he does and what he says. But they're sensing in him a freedom and a joy and a liberty that they've not known in the religious system that they grew up in. And they're walking and his disciples begin picking some of the heads of grain. And this was completely permissible on a non-Sabbath day, right? This is sort of how uh, the Lord organized society and intends society to function with what were called um, some threshing laws and graining laws and all kinds of laws in place to allow um, the poor to walk through a field and specifically in his gleaning law says, hey, don't, don't harvest every single bit. Leave some. Leave some so that the blessing that God has given you might pass on to be a blessing to those less fortunate. The way we translate that today is stop living on 107% of what you make. If you're my people, that's sin. You need to be able to live below the line enough that my blessing into your life can pass through you a portion of and be a blessing to those less fortunate. So there's nothing they're doing wrong here except on this day. And on this day, they're violating in the, in the Pharisees' minds all kind of the particulars that the Pharisees had written out to guard them from the law. The law of God wasn't good enough for the Pharisees, right? So they wanted to build all kinds of things below that, right? No drinking, you might get drunk. No dancing, no dancing. You might end up frolicking or something else. I never fully understood the dancing one, right? And on and on it goes, all these sub-laws. So you can just see them following them, and they've got their little constitutions in their pockets. And they're opening them up and go, look at that. It's a violation of section four, subsection A, point one. Oh, there we go. Section seven, they're threshing. Section seven, subpoint B, numeral four. So they're, they're marking these infractions. While the disciples are just living in the presence of Christ, just following. Some of the Pharisees say, why are you doing what is unlawful 
on the Sabbath. Now, I want to guard you against always seeing yourself in here as one of Jesus' disciples and not one of the Pharisees. Or worse, guys, some of us may see ourselves in here as Jesus. You're not Jesus. So, but Lord knows my own heart has, has felt and lived in this tug of Pharisaism and legalism at times. It whispers to all of us in different ways. Well, Jesus answers them. He says, have you never read? And this is sarcastic, right? He knows that they read. He's like, in the little boxes you tie on your wrists and around yourself to impress everyone with how much of the law you know, have you ever opened those and actually read it? Have you never read what David did in Samuel 21? He doesn't say that, but that's what he's referencing. When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. There was a certain section, both of income, of provision, of material provision that was set aside for the priests, for those serving in the direct service of God that they might be cared for, that their lives might be provided for. And not only did he do that, he gave some also to his companions. Then Jesus said to them a stunning statement that would have caused consternation and anger and confusion in them. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And they knew Jesus was speaking of himself. We've cleared that up a few weeks ago if you need to go back and listen to that. Son of Man is the, the third most common name given to Jesus in the New Testament, and it is the primary one that Jesus gives himself. And what Jesus is doing, he doesn't even uh, uh, exposit or exegete or work with the text at all. He just pulls the text and uses it to make his point. What he's saying is David was the chosen one of God to be king. And he and his companions were in need. And that trumped the ceremonial laws about who could eat what bread at that time. Do you get the imaging there? David was the chosen one of God to be king. Jesus is, is arguing from lesser to greater. That David was a foreshadowing. He was a, a prototype of the one to come, the ultimate king. God who would become king in Jesus Christ. Anointed. The Trinitarian God come to earth. Lord of the Sabbath. Why is he Lord of the Sabbath? Because it was through him and his word in the beginning in the creative chapters of Genesis that everything was made that was made. And the creator Lord is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, my authority stands over and against this. And there's a note here for us. In a culture that says, if I feel differently about something, then Jesus must have been wrong on it. That is blasphemy and it's sin, people. And it's taking down individuals and it's taking down denominations because God will not allow his good name and his glory to be at the mercy of theological morons who have no intention of submitting themselves as fully and as finally 
and as flexibly as possible to the revealed word of God, but rather want to take the word of God and twist it and use it to support whatever current contemporary fad is going on. Jesus is not just Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of it all. He's Lord of life from beginning to end. He's Lord of the trajectory of human history. He's Lord of the rising and the fallings of nations. He's Lord of your life, whether you bow to him now or you bow to him in judgment in eternity. He is the Lord. And in him, his disciples find delight and freedom and beauty. It doesn't occur to them to to be worried that Jesus might jump on them. If they're picking grain at the wrong time, likely this was corn. We don't know exactly. Um, But they may be picking kernels of corn and rubbing it until the kernels come off and eating them. Peter's probably flicking them on people's heads while they walk, right? Pitching his kernel behind him and seeing whose head it lands on. These are normal guys, blue-collar guys, not sensitive types. They're having fun. And the Pharisees are having none of it. But the encounter goes on on another Sabbath, Luke tells us, verse 6. He went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. I like this. The good doctor, Luke, the physician, it's important to him to tell us that it was his right hand that was shriveled, which was seen both colloquially as the hand of power, but also generally most people are right-handed. And it would have been the most debilitating hand to have shriveled. He had a physical deformity in his right arm and his right hand. It did not function. It did not function. There was no life in it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law looking for a reason to accuse Jesus were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You're permitted to heal on the Sabbath, but only in life-threatening situations. But I want to say something here about Pharisaism and our tendency to it in the church. There really are two kinds of Pharisees that we see in church, and they pop up all the time. There are behavioral Pharisees, the ones that have a long list of what you cannot do, And when you ask them simply to back it up with Scripture, they can't do it. They cannot do it. Not faithfully, not properly. But they're attempting to guard God's Word. The Word that Spurgeon said does not only not need guarding, it doesn't even need defending. Just release it, and it will come out of its cage like a lion and accomplish its purpose. It doesn't need guarding by us. It doesn't need us to create subcategories of what people can and cannot do. That is not the gospel. It's not the heart of Jesus. It's not the heart of God. But we've also got theological Pharisees in the church. And they're ones who are always looking like the Pharisees were for here to catch Jesus and behavioral issues. They're always looking to catch people in teaching issues constantly. Because they and they alone have the entirely correct theological system in their minds. Right? Ever met anybody like that? 
So they're, they're evaluating everything all the time and everyone, not in a way that we're commended to in the Pauline letters in our own church to testing and making sure that this is the word of God. Often these people are younger. Sometimes the sad thing is you see some older ones who never grew out of it. I remember um, a man in his midlife. Sometimes when you're young, it's hard to think back at how you were gauging someone's age, right? Um, but probably a, a middle-aged man in a church I served uh, some years ago, not as a pastor, I was a minister of students there. And it was interesting, he, upon his conversion uh, as a teenager, had, been, had begun reading a certain guy and certain sort of popular books that he was writing, and he just dove into that and devoured all of that. And for the rest of his life, that one man, that errant man, as all of us are, was his whole litmus test of what was biblical. That's theological Pharisaism. We have to admit, church, that none of us are going to get everything right. That doesn't mean that God's word isn't to be taken seriously and we're not to probe it openly, asking for God's spirit to help us so that we can understand what it actually is teaching. But it's to remind us that there are all kinds of stripes in God's church globally. All who believe, they're getting it right. That's why we encourage you to hold to that which is of first importance, the gospel and the central principles of the Christian faith and give grace and flexibility and charity to those which are of second and third importance. They're watching here. They're waiting to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. I was... I, I was meditating on this this week and thinking how terrifying it would be to have people in your presence, anyone who regularly just could know what you were thinking. Now that may just be a fear for me and Donnie, but spouses, can you even imagine the terror there? Now sometimes Sharon looks at me and I do know what she's thinking. She's expressing herself clearly through her face without the need for words. And I simply want to act on it. Usually I want to leave the space. So he knows what they're thinking. And he says to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Can you imagine how terrifying this would have been? The man with the shriveled hand in this culture wanted to do nothing but stay anonymous, right? He wanted, he wanted to be uh, given a high degree of anonymity. And there's some debate about whether or not maybe the Pharisees even had brought him with them, because this would not be a typical place where he would want to be at Sunday synagogue or Saturday synagogue uh, in worship. But he's there. He's got a right hand, a right arm that does not work, that, that physically is deformed and has issues. And Jesus brings him up to stand in front of everyone. But you can always bet this. Our Lord is not cruel. Our Lord is not looking to humiliate you, to belittle you, to harm you. He brings this man up. The man stands up. He gets up there. there there's also a word for us here. There's a time and a place to sort of sit back 
and be calm and kind of rationalize with people in the life of the church and ministry. And there's also a time to confront things, right? Some would have been looking at Jesus going, this is, this is inappropriate. These Pharisees, they're our, they're our, our teachers of the law. You know, they're, they're the experts on this kind of stuff. Not really. I mean, you got your teachers of the law and the Pharisees. But in the common life of the church, it was the Pharisees who had all the say. Why are you confronting them so publicly? But they needed to be. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you. Huh, I like this. Jesus saying, it's my turn to ask the questions now. I've fielded enough from you over the last few days and weeks. It's my time to ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? It's a rhetorical question. It's as if he's saying, are your hearts so small and your minds so dimmed that you would miss the first principles for the letter of the law, and not only the letter of the law, but the letter of the law that you've created, the tradition of man. But you really miss the heart of God for the traditions of man. Church, I tell you that the danger of this exists in all of us, and none of us more than those of us who've been in church the longest. A new thing had come. A new day was here. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God. Newness was right in front of them. And those who should have recognized it quickest were the last to recognize it. Many of them never did. And they were the first to try to stop it. Never considering that it actually might be the work of God. It actually might be a fresh wind of God. It might actually be that thing that they've been looking forward to. But because it doesn't look like they thought it would, and it's not coming through someone who looks like they thought would be bringing it. And it's including all kinds of people they don't particularly like. Not only are they missing it, they're trying to stand in the way. It's a very dangerous place to be, friends. He doesn't even give them time to answer. It's clear that the question is rhetorical. Verse 10, he looked around at them, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. I want to pause here because you've got to understand something. What Jesus asks this man to do with his withered arm and hand, he cannot do. He could not do this. And it's important for you to understand that the word of Jesus isn't just life changing, it is life giving. The word of Christ is not just life changing, it's life giving. And what he was clearly unable to do, he simply did at the word of Christ. He simply did it. Christ's word didn't just command him to, it enabled him to. Just as in our day, Christ calls sinners to repent and to believe in him who absolutely cannot do it. If you have even an elementary understanding of the doctrine of sin in Scripture, you know that our hearts and our minds are so darkened that the Apostle Paul says we can't even understand spiritual things. 
In fact, we're referred to as dead in our sin and trespasses. But Christ's word comes to us and calls sinners to repent and believe in him. And they do. They do what they clearly are not able to do because Jesus' word isn't just life-changing, it's life-giving. And the shriveled hand here is simply indicative of the shriveled hearts of men and women. It's not that there wasn't a historical man standing here with a shriveled hand, and that's significant. But it should cause our minds to think of our hearts shriveled by sin and transgression, unable to reach out for Christ. Are you with me? But the word of Christ comes and calls dead sinners to life. And we repent. We do what we are clearly unable to do apart from the effective word of Christ. It is a terrifying thought, a terrifying thought that you would run from God so hard and so long, you would push back from him so many times that you might find yourself in the situation as those in Romans 1 do, where God just simply, he just pulls back and allows you to just run head on into sin and your own judgment because you have been called and called and called and you push and you push and you push and you push on the very one whose word enables you to simply say, yes, yes, I am yours. I need you. Well, at this point, there are a couple things that we just simply need to do by way of encountering God's word. The first is that there cannot be missed in here the reality that the wonders and the works and the words of Jesus demand a response from us. Neutrality is not an option. We said that weeks ago. Neutrality is not an option with Jesus. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians as, as he'd been doing, simply encountered the call of Christ. Christ shows up, speaks to him, and all of a sudden this man whose entire life had been defined by religious legalism and Phariseeism in an attempt to please God and honor God now had a life that he said was defined by Christ in him. This morning, the wonders and the works and the very word of Jesus is calling out to you if you've never surrendered your life. Calling on you this morning to repent of your sin, to believe in him, to give your life to him, and to let that be known in obedience through baptism. But finally, we have to ask the question, is there any continuing significance to the observance of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment? Some argue no. Some argue no, that, that to say that we are still to observe the Sabbath, and I won't go in entirely into to, to the shift from, from Saturday to Sunday, but I, I will say this, that apart from Paul's use of the Jewish synagogue, Worship, particularly his evangelistic use of it, um, that Luke 23, 56 is the last reference to the followers of Christ keeping the Jewish Sabbath. From there on in the New Testament, in Acts 
in the, Paul's of, in the letters of Paul in Revelation 1, the move to worshiping on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, the resurrection day was immediate. Christ had been resurrected on Sunday. The Holy Spirit was poured out on that day. And so people will argue, um, some people who read about this kind of stuff and really like it will say, hey, Constantine did that in the fourth century, AD 321. Constantine wrote this, on the venerable day of the sun, S-U-N, speaking of Sunday, let the magistrates and people abiding in Christ rest and let all workshops be closed. But here's the thing, if the church had not long ago, centuries ago, already come into that practice, Constantine would have had nothing to stand on. It was already in place. The late R.C. Sproul says this, which day is the proper day to observe the Sabbath? The first day is instead of the sixth day. Why? Because the Lord of the Sabbath was resurrected on the first day of the week, proving the ultimate intent of the original Sabbath day by which God provides a day of rest, pointing toward that future day when God's people will enter into their ultimate rest upon their resurrection. Upon their resurrection. I think of all the reasons, a misunderstanding of Romans 14 and Colossians 2 by some. A lack of understanding about Sabbath historically. I think the biggest reason Sundays, the Lord's Day, have simply become for most people Sunday fun day is the fact that over the last four to five decades, we have simply seen an explosion of opportunities for entertainment, travel, and communication on Sundays. Most Christian parents do not take seriously at all the participation of the kids in organized sports on Sunday. And listen, I don't know you, I don't know what your kid does on Sunday. So don't think I'm targeting you. I'm talking about what I see across the board and, and what has cost us a little in our own home. It was easy when our kids were a little bitty to say, we're not gonna play that game. Then when they became teenagers, it became harder. But that's just a game we've not played. There is something different about the Lord's day. Alistair Begg said, theology has been replaced with expediency. When we make decisions based on expediency rather than theology, what happens is that your conscience is then no longer captive to the law of God, but rather it is captive to the fluctuating values, ideas, and moods of contemporary society. And if observing the Lord's day, a Sabbath, is a matter of custom rather than conviction, it will soon be gone. Just as the trite saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. When there's no pressure around to observe this day that has been given to us as a gift, it goes by the wayside. I leave you with this from Ephesians 4, where the writer of Ephesians, not Ephesians, I'm sorry, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, where the writer of Hebrews says this in verses nine and 10, part of a wider argument. But for this morning, this will suffice as the band makes their way out on the stage and begins to prepare to lead us in worship and reflection. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is there is yet to be experienced. There is one still out in the future 
a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from him, from his. It's a picture of the coming restoration of all things. When God brings current human history to its close. So when we look at Sabbath across God's word, we see it as an ordinance of creation. We see it in Deuteronomy reflected as an ordinance of redemption where we're called to remember on a regular basis and uniquely once a day, uh, once a week, that God has delivered us from sin and brought us into his kingdom. And it's given as an ordinance of restoration by which we look forward to a final rest in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth when all is redeemed and all is as it should be. I don't think for us with regard to the Sabbath, the real danger is legalism. It's license. It's that we do largely whatever we want and we think God doesn't care. God does care because he cares for you. And Sabbath was made for you. It's given to you as a gift. Let's stand. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, our offering ushers will make their way uh, to their positions. And when I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets. You guys can drop in your connection cards, your giving envelopes. If you need more time with either of those, take the time that you need. Maybe this morning for the first time, you felt the call of Christ. And you repented and believed. Mark it on the back of your connection card. Let us know that so we can follow up with you. Because here's the thing. The gospel is not about conversion, but about discipleship. And we want to help you become a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that your word through the wonder and the work and the word of Christ comes to us not just as life-changing, but as life-giving. God, that in the very call out of sin and darkness and death, we are enabled by that call to repent and believe, and only by that call. God, we honor you this morning and thank you. Thank you that Christ is Lord over all, all time, all standards of morality and ethics, all individuals, the entire course of human history. God, as we honor you, we give back to you faithfully. We give back to you obediently. We give back to you as you have requested and the church has modeled throughout centuries, a faithful, obedient portion of what you've given us. God, I ask as we do week by week that you'd bless those who are about to give. Father, and those who've given throughout the week online and by text, God, remind them that on the other end of their generosity is a changed life. Is somebody with physical needs met or spiritual needs met because they were willing to walk faithfully with you. Bless them, grow them, increase their joy and trust in you. Move in this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.